Jesus. Hello and welcome to Bread and Thread, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. And I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and love history and also making things. This is a podcast about domestic history. And we normally start by talking about things that we have been making and or baking. So what have you been up to? Starting the CrossFit project. It's quite big. Um, Yeah, I counted about 160 by 240 stitches is what I mean. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this feels really dorky to say. I'm making Mothra versus Godzilla <laughs> because I love Mothra and Godzilla, and I wanted to do a big cross stitch, and I have a lot of green. Because <laughs> for some reason at the moment, I have a lot of green, like thread and yarn, and I know green is not a creative color, <laughs> but. It is known. <laughs> it is. Haven't you seen Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared? I have. I have. <laughs> so yeah, I'm doing that. And I'm also using my leftover green to make Nick a new scarf. Because they need an, a smart scarf that isn't a pink ultra-like one. Ooh. Crazy. So what, what have you been up to? Anything green? Um, oh, I wish. I'm also one of those people that like picks up like if I buy impulse buy any kind of craft related thing it's probably green because that's my favorite color um but I did no I didn't make anything green um or anything on such an epic scale as Mothra versus Godzilla which I can't wait to see um I did make an apple cake a progress pick (laughs) excellent I made an apple cake um Yeah, but I didn't get to eat it because it was for my neighbour because she lent me loads of books for my course. Um, But I made it and it was nice. And I used a Kentish apple cake recipe, um, which is the the go-to one we normally use. And it is very good and moist. I've never had an apple cake. It is good. I mean, it I sounds would... like it's good, but I only started liking cooked apples, like, during lockdown. Mmm. I don't know if, like, having COVID did something to my taste buds, and now I like cooked apple. <laughs> um, I might have to try apple cake. Maybe. Um. I Yeah, I always send you SP. Um, it's good. I find they don't tend to go, like, mushy. Like, there's still a bit of texture. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's but it's quite a soft cake in general, and it's also a really nice pudding if you have it hot with ice cream custard. Oh, that does sound good. Yeah, I, I yeah. cannot have enough custard, honestly. I'm not a custard person. I don't like it. I just say it because apparently everyone else in this country likes custard. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will forgive you because it means. That there's more custard for the rest of us. That is true, and you're welcome to it. <laughs> um, so, shall we? Shall we go on to the main topic? I think we should. I believe it's your turn. It is, and I'm going to talk about Gallus Gallus. I know this one. 
<laughs> it is. It is the chicken. Um, I am going to talk about domestic chicken and poultry keeping through the ages. Because um, being being a food and domestic history podcast, I feel like this covers both aspects. And it is a very domestic thing. Um, so and also chickens are great. And also chickens are great. <laughs> <laughs> they are like the the most winning of animals. Um, they're just like you can just watch them all day. <laughs> they're so funny. Um, we have so we have uh, three chickens in our back garden at the moment um but we're having to keep them sort of in all the, in their run all the time at the moment because bird flu is here again um so they can't have any contact with wild, wild birds um but but they have quite a big run so they're okay and they've got lots of things that they can jump on and scratch around in and um general enrichment do they have names they do have names um, they are Frodo, Gandalf, and Sam. Excellent. I mean, they're all female chickens, but but Frodo. Still excellent names. <laughs> yeah, one of them has like a a white ring of feathers around its neck, so that one's Gandalf because <laughs> it's wearing a cloak. But they are extremely nervous chickens. Um, I've started like get getting them to like be a bit less nervous because I normally take some um if I'm like feeding them or collecting eggs or anything, I normally just take some weeds or something in because they like to like peck at the foliage and stuff. Um so now instead of just running away, when I come close to the the run and they can see I've got something, they'll like come up. And then when I go into the run, they'll run away. <laughs> and then when I put the food down, they'll come back. So we're making progress. Um, so yeah, as you can see, chicken keeping, um, sort of domestic chicken keeping remains very, very popular to this day. Um, and throughout history, it's been really, really common just to have chickens at home pretty much everywhere. Um, depending on what period and where you are, as I will explain, not everyone has chickens to start with. Um, but because they will basically eat anything, um, so you can feed them on all of your household scraps and they'll just like forage around. So they're quite like low cost to keep and they yeah, that sounds quite handy. Yeah. Um, and you can also eat them if you want to. So um, yeah, they're they're pretty handy to have around, um, and fairly sort of low intensive time to take care of. Um, so the progenitor, um, the ancestor of the modern domestic chicken, the ur chicken. <laughs> <laughs> um, as you could call it. <laughs> is Gallus Gallus, the red jungle fowl native to Southeast Asia. Um, so I'm dipping a little bit into uh, the domestication um, module that we did um, for this. So as part of our archaeology degree, Liz and I um, took a 
a class on the domestication of plants and animals and it was very interesting um so the chicken sorry it was one of my favorites honestly um yeah yeah it was cool i wrote a whole essay on cannabis it was great (laughs) (laughs) um but which is also one of the the oldest domesticated plants but anyway that's not the topic of this episode um gallus gallus (laughs) being the the ancestor of all chickens not the only progenitor it's thought that it also crossbred with other types of wild birds other types of jungle fowl um but the common ancestor of pretty much every like modern chicken breed is thought to be the red jungle fowl and there is controversy in the chicken fandom okay about when and where the red jungle fowl was domesticated um so everyone everyone's going with some time in prehistory uh, it's thought to be one of the earliest domesticated oh, animals gone this is so vague some point before we started <laughs> writing things down <laughs> chicken. i mean yeah 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 i'm gonna i'm gonna give you some dates in a minute but um <laughs> yeah everyone just agrees it was prehistory and leaves it at that which i think is probably what it will come down to in the end to be honest I mean, it's like the hunt for the world's oldest banana. It's like, oh, this one's a little bit older. Like, yeah, it's pretty old. <laughs> I know. And then, like, a couple of decades later, someone finds one that is, like, marginally older, and everyone's like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's like, a few um, options as to when the chicken was domesticated, but it's thought to be one of the oldest domesticated birds, uh, well, animals in general. Um, along with ducks and geese, which are also part of domestic poultry keeping. And um, they are thought to be domesticated through the commensal pathway of domestication, um, which is when animals are just kind of hanging around and they notice there's food where the people are. Um, they they sort of come and, and get some of the food. and nothing bad happens so they kind of just keep coming back and then eventually domestication happens um because people um yeah so people notice this is happening and are like oh maybe we'll put some food out for the animals so they come back again and we can eat them um (laughs) but yeah gradually people start breeding and then domestication happens and so there's there's a few theories for when this took place. Um, there's a possible domestication event in Thailand, um, possibly ancient China as well, um, and also the Indus Valley in Mahenjo-Daro. And there is actually a fantastic article that I found about this um, by a Japanese professor called Masaki Eda who apparently spent a lot of time studying on this. Um, and they were looking at several um, ideas around this. Um, so the sites in China um, where they'd found what were thought to be chicken bones dating back to about 10,000 years ago, um, this is kind of a controversial one because it later came out that a lot of them were like native pheasant bones. 
Um, and I, I'm sure you know the difficulty in um, in identifying ancient bones. Oh, for sure. <laughs> um, being being your particular thing. I um, think that, that was my dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> so they were looking at like morphological differences that occur during domestication, trying to work out, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, what sites were these found at? Is this evidence for domestication? So there's this there's one in China potentially. There is a lot of evidence for like early chickens as we know them in um, in ancient China. Um, but then it was thought that perhaps the Indus Valley site in Mahendradara was older. Um, this other study I found is kind of challenging that, but it it doesn't really give any idea of like what like it says it's quite it's kind of difficult to tell like you can't really reliably identify which one of these is the oldest domestic chicken um so i think it's probably just kind of one of these it kind of happened around the same-ish time just about everywhere in this area um but anyway Somewhere in Southeast Asia around this time, chickens became domesticated. And from there, it's thought that they kind of spread through towards, through um, Middle Asia and then through into Africa and Europe um, in around the 8th century BC, um, potentially. And it seems like they kind of took hold fairly early and pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And then from there kind of spread around the world. Um, there's evidence in the Viking sagas where it says that when the Vikings colonized Iceland in the 10th century, they took chickens with them. Um, there's evidence that um, during the Polynesian colonization age, they took chickens with them. It's so just, it's a good like it's a good colonizing animal I feel like yeah cuz i it's small it produces food like on the way rather than just when you kill it mm-hmm. yeah it they're they're pretty handy um and it's thought that at the beginning of domestication they weren't really kept for their eggs um they were more like kept for meat because the red jungle fowl doesn't lay many eggs and early chicken breeds didn't really lay that many eggs and oh. none at all in winter um, because chickens are affected by the loss of daylight in winter and so they lay less to no eggs. Are you telling me that chickens have seasonal affective disorder? No, that's not what I'm telling you, but you can say okay. it like that if you want. <laughs> I got very concerned for a moment. <laughs> They seem all right, but they just like don't have the energy to lay eggs. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I've never asked a chicken if it feels sad in the winter. Um, <laughs> I would feel very bad if that was the case, and I would probably bring them inside and try and hug them, and they would not like that. Um. <laughs> but no, yeah, no, so try. <laughs> so the like egg laying output of chickens is something that's developed over the years. Um, but certainly by the medieval period, as you can tell by a lot of recipes from the time, they use eggs. So, um, so, so they're they're being kept for their eggs. 
later on. Um, and speaking of the medieval period, they're quite chickens have end up having quite a a personality, you know. Um, they can be quite symbolic of certain things. Obviously, cockfighting is is a big deal. Mm. Um, and the medieval period being like a very thrifty one as well. Um, lots of like peasant families would obviously keep chickens or keep other animals as well. Um, but chickens are, are one of the cheapest ones to keep. And so lots of people would have just like a few chickens. They were kind of seen as like the women's area to take care of um, was, was the poultry. And there are various different kinds. So you, you just need the one cockerel, really, because they fight. But um, you've probably heard of capons. I have. I've eaten them. Oh, really? Uh, I have not. How, how was it? A um, little bit more flavourful than a regular chicken, but not mm. as full on as like your, your sort of ducks and geese. Hmm. It's just like a, a meatier chicken. Okay. So yeah, capons are the castrated male chickens. Um, which obviously the people back in the day are not going to just get rid of a male chicken because you don't waste things. Mm. So that was kind of a way you could keep them without having cocks fighting all the time. Um so yeah, you have hens, you have capons, and you have cocks, and you have pullets, which are the young, the young like sort of pre-laying animals. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit quickly about the Chanticleer story. I don't think I know this. So it's most famous for being the nun's priest's tale in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. But it is actually kind of an older story. It comes from a series of tales in Old French about Renard the fox, okay. who is this character in European folklore. He's like the the classic wily fox, and he's kind of it's kind of a lot of underdog stories. And in fact, um, the English version is is like Reynard, which is Sussex dialect for a fox. And Fox the Fox. Yeah, Fox the Fox. <laughs> or Master Reynard or um which yeah in, in some of the rural areas still gets used, which is nice. Um so that made its way into like English dialects as well. And um so the tale of Chanticleer. Um I'll I'll try not to go on too much, but um basically there's like an old peasant woman. And she lives with her two daughters. Um, they're not very well off, but they have this little flock of chickens that they keep in their cottage. And the cockerel is like a really, really beautiful, very foppish cockerel. Um, he's very proud of his beauty. And he has this, he has like his many wives um, that he presides over. And he has his favourite wife, who's called Pertalot. Um, and his name is Chanticleer. And um, Chanticleer is a bit of an empty-headed bird. Um, he has a dream that he is going to be captured and die. 
and he wakes up in the middle of the night and wakes up his favorite wife and she's like it's just a dream go back to bed um anyway then he meets the fox renard and the fox is very courteous and flatters chanticleer and tells him that his father was a great singer and that if if chanticleer would only like shut his eyes and stand on his tiptoes and stretch out his neck and crow he could see if the son sang as beautifully as the father Um, and i'm sure you can guess what happens there um Bobby Cockrell is executed? <laughs> uh, not quite. So the fox grabs Chanticleer by the throat and starts to run away with him. Um, but oh, Pertilot, the, um, the wife, starts screaming. And then all the, the chickens start like wailing and clucking. And the woman and her daughters wake up and they set the dogs out. And they all start running after the fox. who's <laughs> uh, running away with Chanticleer in his mouth. Uh, and then Chanticleer having a bit of a brainwave, starts to flatter the fox and tells them that he's he's so much faster, he's got time to turn around and taunt his pursuers, which he does. And of course, as soon as he opens his mouth, Chanticleer jumps out and flutters up to a tree. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so the moral of the story is that um, flattery has got them both in a bit of a sticky situation. And, and yeah. <laughs> Chanticleer does get away in most versions of the story that I found. So there you go. Um, so yeah, I like that. And I think Chanticleer seems to be a bit of a sort of medieval nickname for cockerels and a bit of a symbol of like vanity and empty headedness. Um, but interestingly, in this story is a reference to a peasant's rebellion of 1381. Um, which is how they can kind of date the story. That's wild. I know. Um, so he also says uh, that the the wailing of the chickens um, doesn't make half as much noise as Jack Straw and his men, who was the leader of the peasant rebellion. <laughs> 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 so there you go. Um, that is how chickens relate to the Peasant Rebellion of 1381. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, yeah, so at this point, chickens are being kept kind of around the world. Um, although geese and ducks are also very popular um, fowl to keep. Uh, and they are migratory, so they are sort of native to a lot more of the world. Um, they've been found in middens um, in America um, in prehistory and kind of across the world as well. Um, so those would also be kept. I haven't got as much information on those because then you kind of, it gets into its own thing. So that's potentially for a later episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but those being wild as well were were frequently hunted as well as kept in in domestic versions. Geese for their feathers as well, for goose quills. Um, but not swans, because even though swans were birds that were eaten, they are a lot more of a high-class bird. So, 
we sort of get to the 19th century. I'm going to skip ahead a bit mm-hmm. um, because it's pretty much just people keeping chickens at home. Um, I mean, they they are also on farms, but um, they're not really to such a big scale. Um, like chicken pretty much before the 1950s was a fairly expensive meat um, because they they are egg providers as well. So you, you don't really, at that stage, you don't want to like kill your chickens unless it's A, a special occasion or B, they've reached the end of the egg laying life because otherwise you're not going to get more eggs. Um, so chickens were a fairly expensive meat and kind of a special occasion thing um, until quite recently. Like my parents remember um, when they were young in the 1960s, like chicken being, well, I don't know about my dad, but pretty my mum who lived in a rural area, like chicken was like, that was what you had at Christmas <laughs> um, or on a special occasion. Um, so sorry I've lost my train of thought here oh yeah I was it 19th century um, there is a bit of an explosion in breeds of chicken because at this point and this has been going on through like the 18th century as well um, you get rich people having poultry as well um, and actually, there's a bit in Pride and Prejudice um, where they talk about Charlotte Lucas being compensated for her marriage to Mr. Collins by enjoying her nice house and her poultry and um, everything that comes with it. Um, so I you get rich people. The, sort of the, the original cottage core movement at this sort of time, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. So you get, like, much like you get a lot of variety in. Um, you know, vegetables and roses and stuff being developed at this time. You get um, the oh, you know those paintings of just really square cows and pigs. Oh yeah, <laughs> love those. They're great. Um, so yeah, you you get kind of a lot of different breeds emerging in the nineteenth century. Um, because you can, if you, if you create a new breed of something, you can have it named after you, um, (laughs) or after where you live. So, um, lots of rich people had gardeners or if it was like a gentleman farmer, they had like managers who would develop new breeds and like show, show farming as well was a thing at this point. Um, so like, chickens would be competitive and like you get pure breeds and that sort of thing coming out um and this is kind of before um they were being developed for industrial purposes so there's a lot of variety um and there's a lot of breeds that have sort of crossover value so like they're not just for laying eggs or they're not just meant to be like for meat but they're good for both because that's what you want when you're doing cottage stuff um but you also get a lot of fancy breeds 
and I am going to have so much fun putting pictures on the Twitter for this one because, oh, there are so many fancy breed of chickens. There are um, some wild looking chickens out there. Uh, it's great. It's great. And a lot of them do date from the 19th century because the Victorians were wild about this kind of thing. <laughs> when the Victorians did something, they did it. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> um, the one good thing I'll say about them. <laughs> uh, I mean, I I love a bantam. Um, there are there are quite a lot of really beautiful breeds that were sort of crossbred with Asian domestic chickens. Um, like I think silkies are. Um, oh yeah, you get you get them in China a lot, don't you, silkies? Um, yeah, yeah. So, oh, okay. No, they're not actually a crossbreed. They they are actually an Asian breed. Cool. Um. Yeah, so they are, but well, you know, it's not just the Victorians, this like fancy chicken breeding is going on all over the world as well, of course, because people like to domesticate. Um, yeah, silkies are so lovely. They're so fluffy. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm just looking at pictures of silkies now, sorry. I am getting rather rough topic. Um, pictures of chickens on the Twitter. <laughs> There will be indeed. Watch that space. Um, but silkies are quite popular as a fancy breed in the West, but people don't tend to like to eat them because they have dark meat and we're not used to that for chicken. Don't Whereas they have black skin as well. I think so. Yeah. So, but but they are quite popular as food in Asia, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, which apparently it tastes kind of the same. It's just dark. Um, uh, what other breeds can I think? I've forgotten the name, but the ones that have like pom poms on their heads. Um, oh, I know the ones you mean because I've seen pictures of them wearing little like eighties headbands to keep the feathers out of their faces. <laughs> yes. Um. So they are fantastic. Uh, the speckled Sussex, I think, deserves an honor- honorary mention. That is a particularly handsome chicken. Well, you would say that. I would, I would. <laughs> Not that I'm biased at all, um, but it it also is like kind of a a world famous chicken. Um, they were often sort of imported through colonialization, I think, and um, and have ended up in various parts of the world. Um, so yeah, lots and lots of different kinds of chicken, um, which drops off in popularity going into the 20th century when sort of industrialization of animal farming started to get big um and variety doesn't work very well with that they want sort of a few breeds that lend themselves well to this kind of industrial like farming yeah you want the sort of the high in the high output ones um yeah pretty much and that's that's where you get sort of chickens being um developed for just this particular purpose um and so a lot of the funny fancy breeds were kind of almost lost but they are they are kind of coming back now as a big thing like people are very into their pedigree chickens um which which i love good for them um, if you've ever been to a country show and gone to the chicken show like tent, it is amazing. 
Oh, I've, I've never been to a country show. I will take you to a country show. That is a promise. Yes. <laughs> there is also like sheep competitions and they're great. Do you get to touch the sheep though? I don't know. It's been quite a while since I've been to one. Because I, I love touching sheep and feeling like the lanolin on the fluff far more than is uh... reasonable. <laughs> like that feeling of a, of a nice greasy sheep. This Blake 2021. <laughs> <laughs> we need to make merch that just says that. <laughs> we do. So, yeah, I guess that's kind of a. I'm going to keep it short. Um, I'm going to say I'll call it there. Um, a lot of the breeds are coming back because of like backyard chicken keeping um, becoming a lot more popular. And actually, in lockdown, a lot of people um all over the world have um have got very much into this um I, in lots of parts of the world people never got out of it um like there of course are still like many many places where just everyone still has chickens mm-hmm. um and they just wander around and do do the thing that they are best suited to which is just like hoovering up whatever they can find um but yeah, I guess in in the West it's not as usual to see that. Although, um, our neighbours a few doors down did have chickens once, and there's like a sort of patch of grass next to the bus stop where you would occasionally see them wandering around, where they'd like escaped from the garden, <laughs> which was great. But I did worry about them with the road like right there. <laughs> oh, there's there's a grassy area near us. Mm-hmm. Every time you go on the local, like next door, spotted Facebook pages, whatever, there's always someone complaining that this one specific chicken has attacked them or their child or their dog. What? It's just this menacing chicken wandering <laughs> around, apparently. Wow. Is it like, does it belong to somebody or is it just there? Presumably. <laughs> But it's just kind of there. I like the idea that it's feral. Like, <laughs> I mean, it might be. It's just gone into Rambo mode. Because like, no, no one, as far as I'm aware, no one has ever claimed responsibility for the Red Bank chicken. <laughs> it's definitely a cryptid. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so it's it's become really popular in lockdown for a lot of people. And now lots of people have chickens. Um, but of course, it does represent a biosecurity risk sometimes. So mm. you gotta you gotta do your research. But um, yeah, would recommend chickens are great. That is it. I like that's that's a solid conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> there is something about them that's just very domestic though. Like it's cozy. I think I know what you mean. Like, there's just that association, I think, in the British psyche of chickens and, like, little old ladies in cottages. (laughs) Yeah. Hello, I'm Mod Pencil from Probably Bad RPG Ideas. If you'd like to hear discussions of ideas such as what if in my urban fantasy game magic turns out to not be real, 
and what is the best rules for an OP. Then listen to the Probably Bad podcast, which is available on everywhere podcasts are and also YouTube. Or check out our Tumblr and Twitter. So what is our local larder today? Um, I thought, since it's starting to get colder, that I would talk mm-hmm. about ice wine. Okay. That sounds cool. Oh, can I just add before you do that, because um, it's just come back to me. The reason I got onto chickens in the first place as a topic is because I was looking through jobs on the Royal College of Occupational Therapy website um, just to see what's out there. And one of the jobs was a well-being through chickens manager. Where they take chickens. That sounds very you. I know. They take chickens (laughs) into workplaces and stuff and just cheer people up. Chickens. Yeah, it was a chicken therapy charity. Um, Amazing. And I was very sad that I was not yet qualified. Um, So, yeah. Tell me about ice wine. So... Ice wine is probably one of the rarest kinds of wine, from what I'm reading. Okay. Um, I've certainly never seen any. So it's a kind of dessert wine made with grapes which have frozen on the vine. Oh, that's very specific. Um, Yeah, legally you can only call it ice wine if they're frozen on the vine. Because there are places that freeze the grapes... Once they've been harvested, but that that's not ice wine. Oh, Probably. it's artificial freezing. Mm. Okay. Yeah, they call what? it cryo extraction. <laughs> what does it taste like? What does it do to the taste? Is it meant to make it better or? Um. So basically, the water freezes. And the sugars in the grape don't. So it produces a sweeter wine. Ah. Uh, it's generally done with grapes like uh, Riesling. Okay. Which is already like a relatively sweet, um, like semi-sweet white wine. Mm-hmm. Your sort of standard Riesling. But having it as ice wine turns it into a proper dessert wine. Oh, wow. Um, So by law, um, in Canada, you can only call it an ice wine if it's been harvested at minus eight Celsius, in Germany, minus seven. Okay. But it's risky because obviously if you leave the grapes on the vine too long waiting for that first frost, Mm. they're going to rot. Yeah, because like the ripening of grapes and the first frost are not too close. I guess it depends on the variety of grape, maybe. Yeah, like um, it, it depends on geography and variety, but yeah, not generally that that close to each other. And you also have um, so there's a thing called noble rot, which I will talk mm-hmm. about more when we do a wine episode, which will be at some point. Um, but it's a fungus which can affect wine grapes, um, which can create a more concentrated, sweeter wine. But ice wine doesn't have this fungus. 
Um, I, I didn't quite understand the reason why it can't, but it can't. So if you leave it too long, you also have more of a risk of that fungus stopping it being able to do what ice, what ice wine does. Okay. Um, so like I said, it's, it is difficult to time it right. Um, there's thought to have only been six 19th century ice wine vintages. Just because it's that unlikely to actually happen. Wow. Which is probably why you now get people doing it artificially with this cryo extraction. I mean, yeah, I can it's see. It's basically a fancy name for just freezing the grapes yourself before you get the, the juice out. I can see why it's so rare. I, I feel like... Would climate change have an effect on that? Because we don't get the first frost until quite late now. Climate change is having an effect. So it's it's mostly produced in Germany and Canada. Right. And ice winemakers in both are basically, they've really been struggling to actually get the temperatures in time. Oh, yeah, that that makes sense. Um... Because yeah, it sounds like in this in the nineteenth century, it was more of a freak, quite exciting thing rather mm-hmm. than something you could expect. Okay, so you can't really plan a whole business based on it. No, um, it did get a little bit easier because they developed technology for getting more juice out of the grapes, so mm-hmm. you, the vintage could last longer. And you have places like, um, there's wineries in Niagara, in Canada, which have a bit more luck than some of the more traditional farms these days. Because it's it's big in in Canada, um, because it was taken over by German immigrants in the 70s. And obviously Canada gets quite cold. Yeah. Does that make sense that that would be a Central European thing? Because it can get quite hot in the summer, but then quite cold in the winter. Yeah. So... Well, there is, there is one ice wine producer in um, Hokkaido in Japan. All right. Um... Yeah, which it's an area of Hokkaido which has a lot of ski resorts, so obviously it, it gets cold. Mm-hmm. Um, but they they make such a small amount of of their ice wine that you can only buy it from um, basically the local train station. <laughs> so if, if you want to go hyper local larder. Hokkaido ice wine. Hokkaido train station. Uh, yeah, Ferrano station in central <laughs> Hokkaido. That's, that I inc- think that's the most local that we've got so far. Yeah, that is incredibly specific. <laughs> I love it. It's... Yeah. Um. So it's it's spreading a bit in the states now. Um. 
with this, the same stipulations that are used in Germany show up in uh, Michigan. Uh, so there's places around Lake Erie which produce ice wine now, mm-hmm. which again, the the grapes have to be naturally frozen. See, I mean, that that's it, really. It's just, it's a sweet wine made with grapes which naturally freeze on the vine. I, I don't really have a lot to say. I just think it's cool. I I am glad that I now know about that. Um, it must be quite expensive. Yeah, it's 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 definitely a more luxury thing. Okay, so possibly just because it's some, a lot rarer. Possibly some time before either of us will would ever get a chance to taste the ice wine but if enough people donate to the podcast (laughs) if you support the patreon enough we will go to hokkaido (laughs) we will go and buy ice wine from the train station oh i love the ever-increasing list of like ridiculous things Yeah, the the cheapest ice wine I've been able to find is uh, thirty dollars for three seven five milliliter bottle. Okay. So like, it's not ridiculously expensive, that's, but yeah, that's, that's also the cheapest ice wine. Okay. Yeah, that's not as expensive as I thought it would be, but also that's still expensive. Yeah. So yeah. Um, mm. Like Hazel said, we have a podcast. Uh, we have a podcast. <laughs> really? Yeah. Um, which has a Patreon. Um, Patreon.com slash bread and thread. I would never trust access. us with a podcast. Where you can get access to monthly recipes. Uh, December's one is going to be Danish style sugar cookies. Mm. As well as a Discord server where we chat about things that we're making and cooking. Um, Join it and follow one patron's exciting adventure to try and make a caterpillar cake. We also have a Twitter at Bread and Thread where you can find information um, about things we talk about during the episodes, pictures and links and teasers for upcoming episodes and general things that are going on with us. Um, we also have an email address, breadandthreadpodcast at gmail.com, where you can send us anything you like, any comments on the podcast, your favourite breed of chicken and why, um, <laughs> or any suggestions you have for future episodes. Uh, we also have a Tumblr where we post similar things to Twitter as well as reblogging various history things that, that we come across. And a YouTube where we are uploading old episodes because I've been told that some people prefer their podcasts on YouTube than on things like Spotify. So thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.